Hi, I'm Julia Adolph, and welcome to Loose Leaf Notebook, where we will explore the connection between creativity and mental health, nurturing artistry, emotional intelligence, and self-care. I'm a composer, and I will be sharing my own personal creative process and journey towards mental health, as well as inviting other artists and creative individuals to share their own inspiring stories with you. Today I am joined by violinist Maya Jasper White. Maya shares how her relationship to her artistry changed as she cared for her young daughter who underwent surgery for craniostenostosis and experienced some PTSD. We discuss how Maya temporarily stepped away from her creative work and how she was able to return and the lessons that she learned from the experience. As co-founder of Salestina Music Society, Maya shares her experience performing for hospital patients during the pandemic through Project Music Heals Us. Hi, Maya. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. So you've had quite a busy, complicated year, and I've just been so inspired by how much you've shared about what you and your family have been dealing with in terms of your daughter's surgery and her recovery. How is she doing, by the way? Awesome. You never know. Should I kind of explain what happened? Yeah. Yeah. In July, my husband and I noticed that she had... Um, one eye that was sort of starting to drift a little bit this way and normally with babies like that's actually pretty common for babies to have lazy eyes but it tends to get better as they get older not worse um so hers was getting worse and we took her to an eye doctor the eye doctor basically said i suspect that the reason her eye is doing this is because her skull is misshapen and she may need some reconstructive surgery on her skull. So in a way that was like the most alarming point of our journey with her. I mean, everybody knows how insurance is and how long it takes to get referrals. And there was this kind of agonizing um, waiting period for the craniofacial surgeon. And that woman just took one look at her and was like, she has all these trademark features of um, uh, craniosynostosis, which means that your skull like babies are born with soft spots so that they can be born first of all, like so their heads are really squishy and also so their brains can grow because they grow so quickly in the first two years of life. It took about two months, which again felt like eternity. Yeah. Um, you know, it was during the height of LA's COVID surge three days after Christmas and it was hard. I mean, they, it, ugh, handing your child over to a team of surgeons, I have never cried that much in my life. Like when I saw my husband, it was just like complete, you know, release of, of emotion. And when I saw her again, it was kind of amazing how calm I felt, you know, especially mm -hmm. given that like six hours before that, I'd never been so distraught. Um, I didn't even recognize her. She was in the first room and her face already looked so different. And I'd been dreading all of those things, you know, will she look or be different you know it wasn't brain surgery but there's still all these kind of irrational um fears like oh my god they're going in her head like will this change her personality you know all of this stuff and i felt like did i not eat enough organic food while i was oh. pregnant 
I heard you label the fear that she would somehow be different, her personality be different, irrational. Why are you calling it irrational? Is there evidence of that or? Oh, I was absolutely negatively fantasizing about it. In a way, it's like the distant cousin of the kind of parent who feels like giving their child a vaccine will somehow make them irreparably different. Okay. You know, so in that sense, I sort of understand, like, of course, Naomi and both our children have had all their vaccines, but I do think that that irrational, um, uh, fear or, or assumption or worry comes from a sort of purity mindset, like, or a contamination. Like if you're going to crack open my baby, something will be changed, right? <laughs> you know, or if you're going to put some chemicals or, or medicines in my baby, something will be different about them from how they were born. And I can't tolerate that, you know? Um, right. So I felt like in Naomi's case, yes, it is, it has been shown, like there was a neurosurgeon present and the neurosurgeon's job was one thing. It was to make sure that they didn't touch her brain. Wow. <laughs> it was not brain surgery. Um, and even so, I know people who've had brain surgery and who've come out of it and still been them. It's this idea of like, again, like kind of purity, like she shouldn't have this and they shouldn't have to go in there and this will somehow, like as if there's this parallel universe right. where everything goes right that you right. sort of fantasize about and, and somehow the one that you're in feels wrong. It's like, no, it's just what it is. You just kind of have to accept that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why did you think it was your, you were somehow culpable or responsible for? <laughs> it's like your textbook anxiety thing, right? It's like, if you think something is your fault, then that means you can fix it, you yes. know, or that, or at the very least that you can understand it, right? you know, that there's some kind of reason. And, and the thing is, it, it's just not about that. But again, it's the most natural thing in the world, especially for a mother, because a kind of mother's instinct is precisely to control like the, what for the well being of your children, you know, so it's, now I understand like where that kind of maternal worry and fear comes from. So it's just kind of recognizing that that, that urge isn't necessarily going to help you achieve either of those ends. Um, you know, I think the important thing, and I feel this way about all just like feeling states or emotions is, and I really try to do this. And of course I don't succeed a lot of the time, but that it's, data you know it's information you know and so long as you're sort of harvesting the data of your feelings and your thoughts and then putting those into play um in accordance with just what matters to you then like what else can you do you know you sort of have to let go of the rest and and that's really what my husband helped me with was like look we're doing everything we can you know like wondering if you know the prenatals you took <laughs> didn't have enough X, Y, or Z. There's just so many things you can revisit, but would it change anything? No. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's that idea because I've definitely had my own version of that experience where it's almost preferable, ironically, to beat yourself up over what you might or might not have done instead of accept the truth that it's really completely out of your control. Exactly. Because that's the scariest thing, right? Which exactly. I imagine is what came up when you handed her over to the doctors is that like you, 
you can't control what happens in that room and you can't, you know. Oh my God, like five seconds before she went in, they were like, so with any surgery, there's a risk of blood loss or death and blah. And you're just like, you're telling me that my, but they have to, right. it's because it's an act. Is it a low risk? Yes. But is it a risk? Yes. You know, it was yes. horrifying. <laughs> yes. Absolutely horrifying. Yeah. Um, you're completely right. It's that that semblance of control um, is preferable to uh, accepting that you have none. I wouldn't have my daughter be any different than she is, um, even having had to go through this, even if it were something that I could have done differently at this point, I still feel like I wouldn't change anything. And um, that's sort of like, I think that for our family, what we took away from it was it was just a very meaningful experience because our community really pulled through. Um, we had to go into crazy lockdown because nobody could get sick, like not even a cold in our house. Um, going into the surgeries and we couldn't see anyone. And a lot of people said, oh, that must have been so hard to, to go through during COVID. But in a way, and, and it was one of the like beautiful things about social media actually is that you could really control the, the spread of information. Like you could kind of share on your own time and terms how much and what you chose to tell people like to both share and um, feel supported, but not like you're running into people at work all the time who don't really know what to say. Like, mm. oh, I heard your daughter's having some issues, you know, like you just didn't have to deal with that quite as much, which was nice, Yeah, you know, and to just sort of see the scope of overwhelming support from people, like a colleague who set up a meal train, we didn't cook for over a month. <laughs> That was just so meaningful to feel like how deeply and sincerely people care. I think that like to kind of bring it back to the arts, I've been thinking about how the idea of, you know, workaholism or, or throwing yourself into something, it's not all that bad. <laughs> sometimes, okay. sometimes it's good to have something to throw yourself into. And when I think about all the work that I did. I applied for a million dollar grant. I submitted the application when she was like maybe two weeks post-op and had been working on it relentlessly. And it was really good for me to have something that intense to sort of distract. Um, and again, to kind of find meaning and purpose in something else um, was really good for me. Were you as focused on your creative work, on your musical playing, or were you more sort of geared towards administrative? Um, I mean, I don't know what's involved in the grant, but I'm curious yeah. about which, what kind of work you were doing. Definitely, I would say it was like 80-20 administrative um, creative. And I think probably because it just felt more tangible. And also I have to say that during COVID, the height of COVID, I've, I've not really been the kind of person who's um, thrown myself into like practicing Bach, you know, solo Bach three hours a day. Like I'm really the kind of musician who needs like other people to play with and converse with and feed off of and audiences to prepare for. And, you know, I would 
play some hospital concerts for the UCLA um, patients. So that was really nice. But that playing was the most like, and even in terms of sheer hours, the most I was playing was for the patients at UCLA. And that was really nice. But at the same time, like there is, it's kind of, um, uh, intellectual because it's over zoom. So like, and a lot of the time the patient's camera's off. So, you know, like, oh, there's a, a person on the other end who's suffering. Um, and this is giving some comfort. Um, and so it's nice to do, but it's not the same as playing for someone in, in real life. Um, but it was still, it, it felt great to play, but I, I do feel that throwing myself into the, um, grant applications, it also felt more like something to kind of control for a good outcome. Yeah, I just I I wanted to ask you about that that difference in the kind of work because I've found that, you know, during times of high emotional stress and uncertainty, it can be really hard um, to be really freely creative. Um, and I feel like that's sort of a myth, right? That you can be <laughs> Yeah, suffering to great intensity, and then you get up and you play your, you know, the most beautiful virtuosic yeah. piece, and you pour every fiber of your being into it. You know, no, more just realistically, you're probably doing a more straightforward like tasks, right? That are productive, but it's not taking your emotional energy. Totally, and I think too, in the in the case of the grant application, it was trying to make a really strong case for why we needed and deserved a lot of support. And so it was a way of gathering data and finding like concrete measures of growth and of success and kind of telling a story about um, building audience community. And it, it was a very positive story um, that we were telling. Um, and spoiler alert, we got the grant. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> less than 6% of what I asked for, which is a million <laughs> <laughs> But it took hey. kind of, right? I know. It's still great. Um, but just by way of an example, I brought my violin to the hospital with me because I thought, oh, maybe Naomi would like it if I played, didn't open it. Like she needed to be held the entire time. Like if I was not physically touching her, she lost her mind. So didn't happen. So again, this like romanticized idea of like what music can do and when, when is a time and place for music. Even I was like, oh, that would be nice to bring my violin and play for her. <laughs> like that did not happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the work was also still connected to your purpose as a musician. And I imagine that that was meaningful to you. A hundred percent. In the hospital name. <laughs> If Naomi asked me for any music, it was to sing the theme songs to her favorite TV shows. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about Project Music Heals Us, which I know Salcina partnered with. Um, you were starting to talk about, you know, what it was like to play, unfortunately, virtually yeah. in front of patients at a hospital during COVID. What was that experience like? There was this old woman who I was playing for on Wednesday. Her camera was on and it definitely makes a difference when you can see them. Yeah. When you can't, it's it's quite abstract. And like I said before, you kind of know intellectually what's happening and, and that has value and meaning, but it, it's just kind of a little harder to really feel, um, feel it. And with this old woman, I just had this very overwhelming um, thought, like 
she had been a tiny girl once too. And if mm. Naomi were in her late seventies or, or her early eighties and she were really sick in the hospital, how much it would mean to me to have a stranger do this for her. There are definitely moments like that, especially when you can see. And, and another one I would mention is um, when I was playing for a much younger person who had COVID um, a couple months ago. And I remember, you know, when you're playing, there's the kind of mental tape that's always registering things that you're doing that, that aren't going as you like, you know, so I was playing my requisite like solo Bach and kind of going, oh yeah, that wasn't so great. <laughs> And I looked over and I saw that she was like wiping away a tear. <laughs> and that sort of put me in my place. You know, it, yeah. it put my like uh, self, self-critical kind of running ticker, which is again, not always bad. It's like, right. that's, that's how you improve is like noticing those things and registering them. Um, so it's not like that's a universally horrible thing, but it really put it in perspective to sort of see how calming and healing it was for this person just like okay wow it's humbling you know just right. like make you get over your your self-critical side a little more i love doing it even just like helping to administer the program we had yo-yo ma as a special guest so it's been a beautiful thing so you mentioned i saw that you mentioned on social media that naomi was maybe experiencing some ptsd oh. what does ptsd look like for a toddler and how did you handle that and did did you experience your own kind of version of that as you know a parent so when we took Naomi home from the hospital she you know the doctors had warned us she's gonna be mad you know that was the word they didn't use the word PTSD they just said mad because she wouldn't have understood what she's been through there's still some pain and you know all of this and um they said she's not going to sleep. And when we got home, we were stunned. She slept through the night every night for like nine days, napped at her normal time, was like Little Miss Sunshine. But then, boom, day nine, it was like she suddenly um, went, wait a minute. You know, like the initial maybe comfort or euphoria of being home in a familiar setting right. evaporated all of a sudden. and. Right. I have like videos because we were concerned that there was some, you know, maybe some physical pain um, from, that had come back. So I took videos of, of her just behaving like she was in a war zone, inconsolably crying on the ground, kicking and screaming, nothing like she would ask for things um, like wanting to be held or wanting a toy. And the second we would um, comply, then it was as if we had just committed the ultimate act of betrayal and the crying and screaming would become intensified. We just had to ride it out. We basically just did some some research. Of course, we contacted all the doctors. <laughs> the, the consensus seemed to be like, this seems like she's just finally realized what's happened. And we just kind of had to have faith that it would pass eventually. And it did, you yeah. know. Um, but it was rough. It was literally like like looking at someone who was in a war zone. You know, mm. just she wasn't there. She wasn't in the reality of of our home. We assumed, oh God, she's gonna hate going to the doctor. And every now and then she'll say things like, No doctors, no folks. And what I usually say is, That's right, not today. So how did you take care of yourself during <laughs> this whole period? 
Oh boy. Lots and lots of knitting. Okay. <laughs> knitting is definitely my therapy. Um, I did speak to a therapist um, once or twice. That was super helpful. You know, something else that was really healing. My cousin, um, she recommended uh, looking into a Facebook support group which I did and, and going into it, it was so great to have a place to ask all those questions. But there are also times when I feel like I need to step away from that group a little bit because it's like a little too much remembering. Um, so I just try to stay aware of like, am I in a, a place where I want to help someone out or am I in a place where I need to like take a step back? Do you feel like you were just sort of getting through this phase? you know, with, with Naomi and, and now maybe you're able to focus on taking care of yourself a little more that the oh, yeah. immediate danger is sort of past. Well said. Yeah. You know, if children are, are great for, for something, it's being present <laughs> because they're, they've got a ton of needs like moment to moment, you know, right. but that doesn't leave a lot of you know, so it can get you out of yourself, but it also gets you out of yourself. They're, they're just, it takes some time to really like realize and accept that that danger has passed and that everything's fine. And, right. and I think, you know, to your point, I, looking back to even once she was fine, it took an additional like one, two months for me to really come down because you're on high alert, like hypervigilant. If you were um, sort of maybe disconnected from your own personal self-care because you were caring for your daughter during this emergency. You were also disconnected from your maybe artistry or your musical. Is that, is that true? So do you think the two are connected? Most definitely in some ways. Um, and in other ways, no, because my connection with music predates, it's so long and so just enmeshed in my whole life story. Um, but all that is to say that it continues to be. And now my life story includes this and, and her and, and my whole family. Um, and the example I just gave of like um, playing for that old woman um, and thinking about um, my daughter as an old, older person, there, there are times when that connection feels really obvious. I would say that whether it's from COVID or this experience or doing what we do with Project Music Heals Us, there's something about playing now that feels more like an act of service. Um, and at the same time, a little bit more let both, like an indulgence for myself. Mm. <laughs> like I enjoy practicing in a different way. You know, um, I think when pre-COVID and maybe even just in my younger years there was always a sort of athletic component to practicing which felt like just the, the the enjoyment of figuring something out and making it better but i found that lately when i practice or play i feel like i'm enjoying settling into and creating resonant sonorities you know mm. it just feels a little bit more Ah, okay, you know, and of course I'm still noticing all the things that I want to be better much in the same way as I always have. Um, but there is a quality of like, like sometimes when I, even yesterday, I just was kind of like, I'm going to practice the boxy major first movement because 
I don't usually choose that one. And I just want to see if instead of just like, oh God, that one's really difficult and it's really hard to make it sound good. Like I'm just going to kind of enjoy um, the sonorities that come out and, and settle into that. Mm. I don't know. There's just a lot swirling around for me lately with playing that's like giving and, and resonance and sonority and beauty more than just kind of excellence or right. accuracy. Being connected with the real meaning and purpose of music making. Totally. As opposed to, you know, the striving and, and goal setting that we learn in conservatory, which is, of course, as you said, important in terms of making you a stronger musician, a yeah. more athletic musician, but right. not what you need to, to be like a happy musician. Right. Like, I'm sure you would feel that way with your podcast, too. It's like this is a side of your music making or your practice you know, that is it writing a piece? No, but is it like contributing to the field of, of music in a way that's meaningful to you and to other people? Like, yes, and who could ask for anything more than that? So what advice would you give to other parents or really just anyone trying to care for a family member or a friend who is ill or is maybe waiting for news? Right. I would say being um, open to accepting other people's um, care um, because that is not only supremely helpful, um, but also very meaningful. So that's one thing. I think having faith is, is another really important one. Accepting your lack of control over something, accepting that things are going to be hard and just to kind of be endured. Um, is a really uncomfortable reality, but it is just the way it is. And just like how, both how big and how small the world is in terms of where that care can come from. You could be strangers on, on a support group on the internet and also like right under your nose. And uh, I think sometimes our bodies try to give us a heads up when when they need us to slow down and, and um, just to kind of listen to that just kind of like to be more aware of like, what is my body trying to tell me with this, like not sleeping well and feeling really burnt out and, and grouchy. Right. <laughs> you know? What is, what is the memo I need? You know, that these feelings are like, they're information for me to act on. It's, you know, you can't just kind of will yourself out of it. If people want to find you and hear your music, more about Celestina, where can they go? Sure. Um, well, Celestina has these um, virtual happy hours every Tuesday. It's usually at 6 p.m. Um, Pacific time. And that's at celestina.org. You can see what's coming up and register. Um, and then for live concerts, things are really picking up um, starting at the end of July. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Julia. Maya's family story serves as an important reminder that during times of crisis, it may be important to step away from your artistry and find other more tangible ways to stay connected to your creative purpose. It is a myth that great artists can push through great amounts of pain. Sometimes we really do need to have some perspective and time to begin to process our life experiences and then we can dig and channel that into our artistry when we have had some time to heal. So thank you Maya for being with us today and thank you for listening. 
Thank you for listening to Loose Leaf Notebook. I'm Julia Adolph, and the music you are hearing is my orchestral work, Dark Sand Sifting Light, performed by the New York Philharmonic with Alan Gilbert conducting. If you'd like to hear some more of my music, you can visit my website at juliaadolph.com or my YouTube channel, which also has video versions of all of these podcasts. Thanks again.